Aren't you grateful for God's mercy? Amen. Amen. Folks, once again, take your Bibles, find Matthew chapter 19. <clears throat> now, you remember last week, or actually last sermon, the week before last, we started a three-part message over this passage of Scripture on marriage. You say you're going to talk about marriage for three sermons out of one passage. Absolutely. Because there's a whole lot here, and I'm going to tell you something. Even in three messages, I don't believe we're covering all of it in depth. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 19. Let's start reading verse 4. Jesus speaking, it says, And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain or two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Father, today I that our hearts and eyes would be open and focused on what you're saying to us. I pray for those here today that are married, for those that are planning on getting married. Uh, Father, I pray that we would listen, listen intently to what your word has to say. That we would understand that marriage was your idea, it's your design. And it doesn't matter what the latest books may say or what the latest uh, trend or philosophy may be, Father. You're the one that designed it. You're the author. You're the one that knows best. And I pray we would turn to your word and seek your guidance. In Christ's name, amen. I remember hearing a story years ago about an old farmer that walked into a lawyer's office in town. And this old farmer was contemplating filing for divorce. And so he began to talk to the lawyer, and the lawyer said, Well, sir, do you have any grounds? The old farmer said, Yes, sir, got 160 acres. The lawyer said, No, no, sir, you, you misunderstand me. Do you have a case? The old farmer said, No, I got a John Deere. The lawyer said, No, sir, you, you're not understanding me. He said, Sir, you're not, you're not listening to what I'm saying. Do you have a suit? The old farmer said, Well, sure, I got one that I go to funerals and weddings in. The lawyer said, no, sir, once again, you're not understanding me. He said, I don't know how else to put it. He said, let me ask you, does your wife, does she ever beat you up? He said, well, no, we get up at the same time, about 5 o'clock every morning. <clears throat> now, folks, that story illustrates a problem with communication. There's a failure to communicate between the lawyer and the farmer. Now, I want to tell you something. In many marriages, things are just like that. There is a failure to communicate, a failure to understand, and because of that, there's a lot of fussing and fighting and fuming and other things that go on. You know, I hate to say this, but a lot of couples remind me of the, the old boy who was talking to his friend. He said, you know, I got married at the justice of the peace. He said, I'm going to tell you something. The day of my wedding is the last time I've, I've seen either one of them, justice or peace. And I think a lot of people feel that way about their marriages. Folks, one of the reasons that so many marriages today are engulfed in the storms of life and, and in those dangerous waters is lack of understanding. He doesn't understand her. She doesn't understand him. And because of that, they each travel in opposite directions and their paths never intersect. Now folks, we are looking at God's masterpiece of marriage. After God finished His masterpiece of creation, He chose to build, to construct a masterpiece between man and woman. 
And now before we can truly appreciate what God has joined together, we need to understand what is meant <coughs> excuse me, by the phrase, joined together. <coughs> now if you were here last sermon, I, I kind of explained this a little bit. The Greek word for the phrase joined together, it describes the act of building. And actually it's even more than that. It it's, gives the idea of placing pieces together perfectly. So they fit together just like they're supposed to fit. And when that happens, then uh, something wonderful, something beautiful, something uh, uh, solid, firm, and complete is built. That's the picture that Jesus uses to describe the masterpiece of marriage. Now, folks, marriage has been created by God between one man, one woman, for life. He has joined together the man and the woman for the purpose of creating a sacred institution, a sacred union called marriage. And what makes this uh, even more beautiful is the fact that marriage, the marriage relationship, it is what Jesus uses to describe His relationship to His bride, the church. Now we saw in the last sermon that we have been joined together. We have been built to love one another. And as husband and wife, we've been built to love one another with an unconditional and unselfish and undefiled love of Christ. Now today, I want us to see that we've also, not only have we been, been uh, built to love, but folks, we've also been built to live. To live out God's blueprint for marriage. There are three things that I want to draw out of this passage today that will help us see how we've been built to live. And the first thing I want to talk about is a beautiful cohabitation. Now let me explain something to you. When I speak of cohabitation, I am not referencing or advocating the matter of living together outside of marriage. The Bible never authorizes or approves that. Living together outside the holy bonds of marriage is completely forbidden, forbidden by God. All right, let me make that stance real clear to you. Now, having said that, what I'm speaking about when I talk about a beautiful cohabitation, I'm talking about two people who are joined together by the covenant of marriage, and they have set out on a course of beautiful cohabitation, dwelling together in love and unity. And the first thing, folks, we need to understand is this matter of cohabitation to be a beautiful cohabitation, it involves a whole lot more than simply living with each other. It involves living for each other. Let me explain this to you. Look at verse 5. Again, Jesus spoke of the matter. He said, they are no more twain, but one flesh. He said, no more are there two, but there are one. In other words, God has joined together two people, completely, totally, utterly distinct persons. And these two people have entered into the holy sanctity of marriage. They've committed their lives to one another and for one another. Let me make this clear. The idea of being no more two but one flesh, when you really understand that, that rules out the idea of self-centeredness. That rules out the idea of selfishness. You see, when you understand that marriage truly is two becoming one before God. And when that sinks into your heart, you realize what once was a single proprietorship, now is a sole partnership. The two have become one. And i got to tell you, this is one of the biggest areas of conflict with most couples. When one or both people in the relationship fail to understand the principle of two becoming one, of living for each other and not for self. You say, why do you say that, preacher? Because when people demand their rights, this is where it's coming from. They don't understand in marriage, you're to live for one another. 
You're to esteem your husband or your wife better than yourself. You're to think of them first before yourself. And when people do not grasp this, then he demands his rights. She demands her rights. And when that happens, the conflict uh, begins to get out of control. Emotional tensions begin to build. Anger, frustration replaces affection. And the root of bitterness begins to grow. Concerns become complaints. Complaints become threats. Threats lead to disaster. And then suddenly, there's nothing in the home but bickering, complaining, fighting, name-calling, and backbiting. Is that not right? Y'all look at me like you don't know what I'm saying. Is he from another planet? Folks, most of us in here, all of us that are old enough to be married, most of us are married. We understand this. But let me continue on here. Once a couple starts down that path, you know, where there's backbiting, fighting, and criticizing, complaining constantly, once they start down that path, eventually they begin to withdraw and shut down emotionally. And then what you have is they begin to sleep in separate rooms. And from that point, once the couple starts thinking like that, they begin thinking about divorce and begin uh, contemplating divorce and problems escalate to a whole new level. Let me give you a little bit of advice as your pastor. If you're married, listen to me. You need to take the word divorce out of your vocabulary. Do away with it. If you got a dictionary got divorce in it, you need to mark that out. You should, shouldn't, that, that word should not even enter in to your relationship with your husband or your wife. Now I'm going to say this. The truth is our contemporary culture, it only contributes to that problem. Because, folks, society's view of marriage, it's about as far away as you can get from God's plan of lifelong commitment based on a covenant with Him. And you know what the greatest tragedy is? The greatest tragedy is now the church has simply become reflective of the culture. You know, near 30 years ago when I first started preaching and I do weddings, I honestly believed that people were going to listen when I said, till death do you part. Folks, that's not the way it is anymore. It's not till death do we part. It's until we get tired of each other. Problems come along. We begin to fuss or fight or somebody new enters into the picture. And what I say, said a while ago, I mean, one of the greatest tragedies is that's the way society is. But Lord help us, that's the way the church is today too. Marriage counselor William Harley, years ago, and it's still true today, but he wrote this. He said, those of us in the business of trying to save marriages, we struggle daily uh, with cultural beliefs and practices that make our job difficult. He said, the sudden surge of divorces in the 1970s that has made America the country with the highest divorce rate in the world has a great deal to do with changes in our basic beliefs. More to the point, and this is what I want you to hear. He says, more to the point, it has to do with a major shift toward self-centeredness. Beliefs that encourage self-centeredness destroy marriages. You know, it's sad. Many couples have replaced beautiful cohabitation with grudging toleration. They simply just exist together under the same roof. And, and, and it's because two have never become one. And each one of them continues down their own separate path, failing to see the beauty of living, not just with each other, but more than that, living for each other. Let me say this. If there's going to be that beautiful cohabitation, that dwelling together, in love and unity, not only do you need to live for each other, but you also need to learn about each other. 
Now this point right here is where old Dr. J. Vernon McGee, I don't know if any of y'all remember him or not. This is where he would say something like, yeah, right here is where the rubber meets the road. So I want you to listen to me. I would venture a guess and say that a great number of couples who have been married for years and years don't, mo don't know a whole lot about their mates. He said, oh yeah, I know everything about my husband, everything about my wife. Really? Folks, the truth is if the goal is for two to become one flesh, not only do we live for each other, but we must learn about each other. So let me ask you something. And you don't have to answer out loud. Keep this to yourself. Do you know what makes your wife tick, husbands? Wives, do you know what makes your husband sick? Uh, wives, do you know what your husband's favorite color is? Husbands, do you know what your wife's favorite movie is? Wives, what does your husband love? Uh, husbands, what is your wife? What's something that she can't stand? What is your husband or wife's love language? Now I'm going to share something with you here and, and, and get, just give you an example. And this is scientifically proven. And I think I've shared this with you before, but it's it, it worth hearing again. Do you realize that you and your mate have five basic and essential needs? And those five basic and essential needs are completely opposite as daylight and dark. Let me share them with you. And this is true of, of a beginning relationship and, and a middle relationship. And I think part of it is still true the older you get. And here they are. Number five, for a woman in marriage relationship, five basic essential needs. Number one is affection. Number two is conversation. Number three is honesty and openness. Number four is financial support. Number five is family commitment. Now let me read to you his needs, ladies. Number one, sexual fulfillment. Number two, recreational companionship. Number three, an attractive spouse. Number four, domestic spouse. Number five, admiration and respect. These are the basic essential needs that your spouse has from you and desires from you. Every couple, let me put it this way, has, and maybe you've heard this, they have an emotional love bank. When their needs are met by their spouse, a deposit's made into that account, into that love bank. When the needs are not met by the spouse, a withdrawal's made from that love bank. Now over time, if their needs have been met on a regular basis, then that account is going to flourish. That account is going to be solid with regular deposits. But if the needs are not being met, that account will be overdrawn. Now what happens if you're overdrawn at the bank? You go try to take something out of it, what are you going to get? Insufficient funds, right? Well, that's what happens in a relationship. And when the insufficient funds are there, what that does, that opens the door for the husband or the wife or the spouse to go and look for their needs to be met somewhere else. Now I'm not advocating, and never will, advocate that somebody who's married should look for their needs to be met somewhere else. That's the height of self-centeredness in my book. But I'm just saying, that's the way it follows. Again, William Harley, Dr. Harley, he comments, says, knowing what your spouse needs does not meet that need. You must learn new habits that transform that knowledge into action. Then, and only then, is the need met. So let me ask you, Husbands, wives, based on what you know and have learned about your spouse, would you say your emotional love bank is, uh, is it solvent, is it insured, or insufficient? Secondly, with a matter of beautiful cooperation comes, uh, or beautiful cohabitation, comes the, the, the wonderful cooperation. Again, verse 5. 
Jesus says, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. Up to this point, cohabitation has been achieved. But if we take it a step farther, look at verse 6. Cooperation is actually the goal. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What Jesus is saying is the man has left his former way of life. The woman has left her former way of life. And the two merged together to become one. In other words, husbands, wives, he, she has now become your family. This is a new chapter in your book of life. Now let me say this to you young couples that are not married or recently married. And when I say recently married, I'm talking about less than 20 years. So listen to me. One of the best things you can do to cooperate with your husband or wife is let them know that they are your family now. I'm not saying disown your family that you come from, but you need to leave them and cleave to one another. I'm going to tell you, one of the biggest problems I've seen over the years with young married couples is mom and daddy wanting to get involved in that relationship. You say, I'm glad you said mom and dad, not just mom, preacher. Can I be honest with you? I've seen it both ways. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. The moms are usually the worst. Okay? Let me tell you what you need to do. You got kids that are married or getting married. You love them. You support them. They know what's right if you've brought them up right. They know what you believe. They know where you stand. But you also encourage them that... Well, like I, I've told these two, there ain't no returns. This sale's final. <laughs> Folks, that's the attitude that we're to have. We are to leave our prospective families and cleave to one another. And we now become a family. <sighs> Once you have those separate paths, you leave those separate paths, you cling to a single path. Now, in order for that to happen, there has to be this wonderful cooperation between the two people in the relationship. And they must cooperate, and let's just be honest, must cooperate physically. I mean, we have discussed the matter of learning about one another's mate, and, and one area that has to be considered is the fact that for the most part, folks, husbands and wives, they're physically incompatible. Now what I mean by that, for most normal men, we've talked about this, the number one need is sexual fulfillment. But for most normal women, the number one need is summed up in the word affection. Now guys, let's, let me clarify something to you. Those are two different things. Now, one can include the other, but many times it doesn't. Now, having said that, I'm not going to get way off on talking about sex today. I am going to mention it another time or two, so don't get worried if you hear that from the pulpit. One of the reasons that we have so much problem with this, and I'm going to say it again, it happened way back in the 60s with the so-called sexual revolution. I'm going to tell you, the church stuck their head in the sand and didn't confront the problem with God's Word. That's why we have what we have today. One of the reasons. People get nervous. Preacher talks about sex. Well, I've talked about it before. You're going to be all right. Trust me. All right? Listen to me. And there was a lady that wrote Dear Abby. Everybody knows who Dear Abby is, right? That eminent philosopher and psychologist. Uh, she wrote Dear Abby, and I want you to listen to what she said. She said, at age 50, after 30 years of marriage, I would like to forget about sex altogether. Believe me, I paid my dues. I suspect that many, if not most women, feel the same way I do. They just go through the motions because they want to do something for the men they love. Please poll your readers, and if they're honest, I think you'll find that I'm right. It's signed, Tired in Lincoln, Nebraska. Now, they did poll the readers, okay? 
And when all the, the votes or whatever were calculated, tabulated, there was more than 250,000 women that responded to this. 82% of those 250,000 plus women agreed with Tired in Lincoln, Nebraska. So the consensus was they would willingly give up the sex act just for a little bit of affection from their husbands. Guys, are you following me? I didn't hear one man say amen. Do I need to say this again? Do you hear what I'm telling you? Now, having said that, let me say this. Men are wired different than women. We know that. God wired us, for the most part, with a sex drive that's beyond that of a woman. Say, oh, preacher, you're getting off on dangerous ground. Listen to me. God designed it. God is the one that ordained it. God created it. Now, friend, listen to me. God created us the way we are. And there's nothing wrong with sex. The problem is our society has perverted the idea of sex. God created it as something beautiful for procreation, but also for the enjoyment of the husband and wife. Listen to Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. In his book, Ten Commandments of Marriage, Dr. Ed Young, Sr., he says this, Sex is God's idea. God created sex, not merely for procreation, but He designed sex to be an act of joyful pleasure by which a husband and wife bond physically, spiritually, and emotionally. They become one. Sex involves total oneness with our mates, just as it did with the first couple, Adam and Eve, the way God designed it. It is to be an act of incredible love and deep intimacy. Amen? God designed it. You know, listen, folks, there are other ways, too. A number of ways we got physically. For example, Mars is not here, but Hannah can tell her. I'm probably not going to get in trouble with this. I don't think so. Uh, but it's easier to say when your wife's not here looking at you. Uh, no, nah, I'm just kidding. For example, folks, most women are talkers and men are doers. For instance, when a woman goes to lunch with her friends... And they come home and the husband says, what would y'all do? What did the wife say? We didn't do anything. They didn't do anything because they sat and talked about everything. Okay? Vice versa. A man goes hunting with his buddies. He comes home the wife says, what did you guys talk about? He's like, huh? We didn't talk about anything. They didn't talk about anything. Why? Because there's deer hunting. They were sitting in a stand or a blind looking for a deer. Now, folks, the bottom line is we're different. And God created us and designed us and wired us different. But the bottom line is there must be a level of compromise and cooperation for two to become one. I mean, you have to do some things. Guys, listen to me. You may have to do some things that you don't want to do, but you know your wife does, and because you love her and you esteem her better than yourself, you're going to do those things. I've carried purses. I've carried bags. I've walked through art shows. Sweet, merciful heavens, I've walked through art shows. <laughs> Why? Because I love my wife. It's what she wanted to do. I went with her. I didn't care what was happening. I cared that I was with her. And you know what? Marcia has been with me. Bless her heart. She has sat on boats with me. And the weather's terrible, but she stayed right there. She's even been hunting with me. I remember when we were younger, she was bird hunting with me in western Oklahoma. 
She'd never been quail hunting before. She didn't know what to expect. We rounded a corner in the field, and a covey of about 25 birds come up all around us. Now, my brother and I were together. The birds flushed. Now, some of you guys, you understand what I'm talking about. When them birds flush, if you're not expecting it, yeah, it's like a bunch of helicopters coming up around you. They flushed, and we shot, and she was headed to the truck. <laughs> but she went. Why? Because she was esteeming me better than herself. She said, I'll go because that's what he wants to do. Cooperation. Now, cooperate physically, but also we have to, we have to learn to cooperate spiritually. Write this verse down. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. You may know this. That's directed to husbands, but Peter says, Husbands, dwell with them. Talking about your wife. Dwell with your wife according to knowledge. That means in an understanding way. Giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers are not hindered. Now, did you hear that? Did you hear what he said? We are heirs together of the grace of life. In other words, we are to cooperate physically, spiritually, and not to do so causes one of the greatest hindrances to our prayer lives. That's what Peter says. The reason for that is given in our text. Look again. Matthew 19, we read that God's the one who arranged the union of marriage. Uh, in order for it to function properly, then God has to be in the center of it. Amen? Look at verse 4. It says, God made them. Verse 6, God has joined together. Now listen to what I'm telling you. A couple who is saved, a Christian couple, they must approach every area of their lives spiritually. They must approach their finances from a spiritual standpoint. They must approach their family from a spiritual standpoint. They must approach their future from a spiritual standpoint. Christian, listen to me. Every decision must be a spiritual decision. Every duty must be a spiritual duty. Every direction must be a spiritual direction. And understand me, every natural problem must have a spiritual solution. We cooperate spiritually. I refer back to the example of the triangle that I used last sermon. At the bottom corners of that triangle are the husband and the wife. And they're as far apart as they can be. At the top of that triangle is Jesus Christ. And when the husband and the wife begin to move toward Jesus Christ and grow in Christ, what happens? They grow closer together. Until ultimately, folks, they reach that destination and they become one in Christ. And what a beautiful thing that is. I'm going to read Tertullian again. He was a second century martyr. I think I quoted him last sermon. He was martyred for his faith. He said, How beautiful is the marriage of two Christians. Two are one in hope, desires, and the way of life they follow. One in the religion they practice. Nothing divides them, either in flesh or spirit. They pray together, worship together, fast together, instructing one another. Side by side, they visit God's church and partake of God's banquet. Side by side, they face difficulties and persecution and share their consolations. They have no secrets from one another. They never shun each other's company. They never bring sorrow to each other's heart. Hearing and seeing this, Christ doth rejoice. To such as these, Christ gives peace. Isn't that a beautiful description of a Christ-centered, God-honoring marriage? Marriage is never more fulfilling than when it's being fulfilled spiritually. So men, we're to be the team captains. We, don't, we have to be the head and take the lead in spiritual matters. But I want to say this, never discount your wife's sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Now I've had some guys who say, well, I'm the head of the home. That means that I run it. I am the dictator in it. Then you're an idiot. 
You're responsible before God for your home. You take that to heart. But you're not supposed to be a dictator. You're supposed to lead like Christ does in love. And I'm going to tell you, over the years, there have been many times, and in the ministry, when decisions have had to be been made, and I'm the guy responsible to make those decisions, and I have counseled with my deacons. I've counseled with other pastors, with staff members. And then I come to Marcia. And I lay it out before. I said, babe, I need your perspective on this. Tell me, what do you think? Now you say, why would you do that? Because she is one of the most sensitive people I know to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. I said, what do you think? I'm going to tell you more times than not, she's right on the money. You say, what did God call you for? Because that's male headship, I guess. I don't know. He don't need me, honestly. What I'm trying to get you to understand is when the marriage is centered on Christ and built the way God says it's to be built, then the world's a better place because you are together with your husband or wife than it is if you're apart. Wives should follow the direction of their husbands. Husbands should listen to the discernment of their wives. And when that happens, what a wonderful team God has joined together. What, what, what a beautiful team God has made. Finally, from beautiful cohabitation and wonderful cooperation, when that happens, there is joyous celebration. How many of you know uh, the Christian writer Elizabeth Cody Newenhuis? You ever heard of her? She's a great Christian writer, pretty funny. But uh, she, she says it took 10 years of marriage to convince her that she could not change her husband to the vision she had enshrined in her brain. Now, I want you to listen to what she said. She said, admit it, ladies, we've all tried to change our husbands. But after 10 years, I'm finally, I finally wised up. My husband went to Harvard. He's one of the most intelligent people I know. But he never learned that liquid spills on stovetops become solid stains if not wiped up immediately. I have tried to educate him. I have yelled. I have complained. I have gotten out the SOS pad and scrubbed in front of him to demonstrate the procedure. But no change. I've decided it's a basic hormonal difference. Men don't scrub stoves because they don't see the spill. So rather than nag, I just clean up after him. You say, well, I wouldn't do that. Well, listen to me. I shared this for this purpose. The difference between men and women is a difference between daylight and dark. We are different. Okay? We're different. But listen, according to the Bible, it's not a difference that we should seek to alleviate the way the world's trying to. Have you noticed that? The world wants to get rid of the difference between men and women. We're all equal. I agree, we're equal before God, but listen to me, friend. Equal does not mean same. Equal does not mean same. And the Bible, instead of trying to alleviate the differences, we ought to seek to celebrate the differences. Praise God for the differences. For one thing, God made us different. He wired us different. He put us together different. And you know what? God knew what He was doing, so He created a partner who would be strong where we're weak and would be weak where we're strong. I've always loved science. And, I, and to me, a good marriage, a Christ-centered marriage, it's like science. God does something amazing. He takes two negatives, and out of those two negatives, He brings about a positive that brings glory and honor to Him. For one thing, we can celebrate that God's purpose is achieved by us. Look again at verse 5. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. For this cause. 
Folks, that phrase reminds us that God in the beginning made but one man and one woman. So God's original intention of marriage was that a man should have but one wife for life. Till death do we part. That's God's purpose for the bond of marriage. And I'm going to tell you, when husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it, and when wives submit to their husbands as unto the Lord, we begin to achieve God's purpose in our home, our marriage, and our family. And something beautiful is built. Now, the Christ-centered marriage, I'm wrapping it up here, we can celebrate the fact that not only is God's purpose achieved by us, but God's power is perceived through us. Listen, when we come together, no more is two but one flesh. What, that, what happens there? That becomes a living testimony to the fact that it's something God hath joined together. It's something only God could do. Pastor Michael Catt, he's the, the pastor of the big Sherwood Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia. And he spoke words of wisdom. He said, marriage is a unique relationship between three people. God, the man, and the woman. When a Christian couple lives as God designed them to live, they become a most powerful witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friend, one of the greatest ways of communicating the power of the gospel is by having a marriage that is vibrant, that is victorious, that is Christ-centered. And I want to reiterate something. Only God can take two people and make them one in Christ. Only God can do that. I want to read you something in closing. The late Bible scholar, Dr. Kenneth Kanzer, he wrote a column uh, in Christianity Today, and it was entitled, The Freedom of Jealousy. And I want you to listen to this. He said, my wife is 75 years old. At times, her face is etched with old age wrinkles, or so she calls them. And true to her femininity, she hates them. On the other hand, I think the lines are beautiful, and I love every one of them. I tell her that they may come with advancing years, but there are lines of character not old age wrinkles. And I reminded her of a bumper sticker we saw one time that read, if you is 50 and ain't got no wrinkles, you ain't been smiling. <laughs> he says, this is the 50th year of our marriage. And yes, we, still, we are still in love. Our love is more intellectual, more understanding than it was 50 years ago. It's also deeper and stronger and though no less ardent. It is in fact a jealous, now I want you to listen. It is in fact a jealous love. And that is the way it should be. After all, God is jealous. He wants us to love only Him as our God. But that does not stifle our love for others, just the reverse. It frees us to love others. So it is with our love, and I want you to listen close, as husbands and wives. It gives all and demands all, yet does not impinge upon the love each of us has for God. Nor does it lessen our love for our children, their spouses, our grandchildren, our friends, and so on. The more you love, the more you can love. Fifty years is a long time for two people to live together. But for us, I praise God, each year is better than the one before. I'm going to close right here to put it simply. Folks, our marriages, they have been built to live. To live out in front of a lost world. To bring maximum glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a Christ-centered marriage does. And my prayer is that God would grant it be so with all of us here today. Would you bow your heads, please? In just a moment, we'll have a hymn of invitation. Whatever head bowed, I want, I want to make a couple of comments. Those of you that are married, listen to me. 
Maybe you're here today and you're saying, my marriage is not where it needs to be, not what it should be. Well, then my heart goes out for you. It truly does. But what you need to understand is you need to make sure that your half of that relationship is centered on Christ. That your life is honoring Christ. Because if you would take care of your life and then turn your husband or your wife over to God let him take care of her life or his life, that's how a marriage gets rebuilt. That's how a marriage comes back together and is strengthened. We cannot force our spouses to believe, to behave, to act, to do a certain thing. We don't have that power. And all we do at times is drive a wedge deeper between us. So you do what you can do. Make sure your life's where it needs to be. And then continually in prayer, raise your marriage and your relationship up before God. Praying that God takes a free hand in it. I've had so many people over the years come to me and say, Preacher, we're having problems. And the problem is my husband or my wife. Until you focus on you and allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate you, nothing will change. You got an opportunity this morning to come and surrender your life to Christ if you've never done so. And if you have, maybe you need to rededicate your life this morning. Maybe you need to lay your marriage at the foot of God's throne. If it's not centered on Christ, then you're never going to have lasting peace in the storm. If your marriage, your relationship's not centered on Christ, it will never be what God intended it to be. Father, I pray for those that need to make a decision this morning that they would see and understand the truth that has been preached, that has been spoken. That, Father, they would, they would unreservedly surrender their all to you. In Christ's name, amen. You stand, please.